welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. I could see on some of your faces earlier, is this 1100 Blue Ravine Road? Is this Oak Hills Church? A little bit different today. I like how Jordan got us into this. Okay, we're going to do a new song. It goes, rejoice always. I'm thinking it doesn't go like that at all. These folks are in for a ride. So that was really fun. It's good to see you today. And it is Palm Sunday. So I'd like to ask you to stand for our scripture reading. We've been celebrating Jesus, the Messiah and Jesus coming as king. And so we're going to look at Luke chapter 19 verses 28 through 44. And you can uh, actually, I'm going to read all the way through 48, but uh, you can find it on page 1053 in the Bible in your chair, or if you have it on your own, I'll start in verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered The temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The next seven days comprise the most important week in the history of the universe. Palm Sunday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Resurrection Sunday. Each of these days on their own, is enshrined in the Hall of Fame of days. Because the events of this week freed humanity and freed all of creation from the devastating consequences of sin and of evil. And hope, this wonderful four-letter word, hope, real, reliable hope, even in the midst of hopeless situations and circumstances, was born during Holy Week. Now, for the vast majority of the Western world, this week is hardly any different than most weeks. I don't say that as an indictment, but simply to state a fact. Might be spring break from school this week, so it might mean a vacation. 
But beyond that, this coming week for many is like any other week. But for the follower of Jesus, this week is of the highest priority. Because the events of this week changed everything. Today is Palm Sunday, the first day of this hope-drenched week. And today is a day, as we've just done, to raise our hands and palm branches in honor of King Jesus, even if we are not the hand-raising type. Today we join the chorus of God's people throughout the centuries, declaring this marvelous and earth-shattering and soul-shaping phrase, blessed is the king who comes, and then this little tag on, in the name of the Lord, which means the king who comes as God's representative to show us God's character, to be his ambassador, and to reveal to us his way, the way God does things. Now, on that first Palm Sunday, no one who shouted, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, had the slightest idea that God's way involved suffering and ultimately a violent death. And no one had the slightest clue that God's way involved rising from the dead. So they declared something they knew in part, like all of us do. Jesus is king, but they did not understand it fully, nor do we. But because we have the benefit of hindsight, we can look back and look forward from where they were. We know that Palm Sunday also marks a turning point in God's plan to save the world, even though it really didn't look like it. And even though it really didn't look like it, the momentum started to change on Palm Sunday. So today is indeed a day of celebration. Blessed is King Jesus. Today is a day to cling to hope to cling to joy, to begin to laugh our way out of Lent because Jesus has come to free us from everything wrong and evil in our lives and in this broken world. But the hope and the joy of Palm Sunday are also diluted by the reality of everyday life in this world. I mean, we can pretend to celebrate Jesus as the coming king, but that pretend is only going to take us so far. In this broken world, you know and I know, sin and wrong and evil and their devastating consequences still seem to prevail more often than we want or maybe even expect. And this is the paradox of Palm Sunday. This is what makes this day and the spirit, the tone and the texture of this day so interesting. There's a tension built right in to Palm Sunday. Hope and joy, yes, mixed with sadness and despair, which are obvious. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem as literally thousands line the streets and hail him as king. But a few days from now, their cheers of king will become shouts of crucify. A few days from now, the exalted king of Palm Sunday will be exalted on a Roman cross. And a few days from now, the hope of the disciples will be crushed by his death. Tension. This sort of seesaw effect. So Palm Sunday marks a turning point in God's story, but it's not a clean turning point. It's not an obvious momentum shift. Because Jesus riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday has built right within it the seesaw effect of everyday life. The both and phenomena we are all so familiar with. Times of celebration and times of sadness. 
bright days of hope and dark days of despair. And we feel that tension. And some of us feel it incredibly deeply and it weighs heavy on our hearts. This past Tuesday, I spent some unbelievable time with a one and three year old. And we laughed together. And we played together. And most importantly, we ran away from the heffalumps and woozles that were chasing us around the house. If you don't know what heffalumps and woozles are, go on your phone and look it up. You're missing out. So that was on Tuesday. Then on Wednesday, I spent some time with an 88-year-old friend who's dealing with a number of different health issues. This past Thursday, the rain finally stopped And the sun finally broke through and the temperature finally rose and spring may have finally arrived. And yet last Monday, three nine-year-olds and three 60-year-olds lost their lives in another tragic school incident. The tension of hope in a hard world, the seesaw effect, it takes its toll on our soul and may leave some of us wondering if God is actually real or if he is in control. And yet rising up out of the muddled mess, we hear it again, however faintly, the shouts of these first disciples. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Echoing down through the centuries from that first Palm Sunday, however muddled and messy things get in our world or in our lives, We hear those disciples and many since then declaring, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting Psalm 118 and verse 26. And Psalm 118 was understood by the Jews to be all about the coming Messiah. The one who would finally come and liberate them from all their enemies and all their oppressors. And for these disciples to apply Psalm 118 to Jesus indicates who they thought and hoped He was. But even here, the seesaw effect is in play. Nothing is as clear-cut as it seems. Jesus is king and Messiah, but he's not the kind of king or the kind of Messiah they had hoped for or waited for. He's not the kind of king or the kind of Messiah they wanted. His idea of freedom didn't match their idea. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord But he is a rather unusual king. We might even say he is kind of a strange king as kings go. He doesn't fit the mold. He doesn't meet very many of our expectations. His idea of freedom uh, is way different than ours. He doesn't always do what we want. He's a strange, unusual king. For example, he's powerful, but he's also humble. Thousands of Jewish people are flooding the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the annual feast of the Passover and remember when God freed his people from their slavery in Egypt. Passover was like the Super Bowl for the Jewish people. So for those who could, they traveled to Jerusalem, they went to the temple, and for the entire weekend, it was a big celebration in time of reflection. And a high percentage of this massive crowd of people that had descended on Jerusalem were very familiar with the prophecy about the Messiah recorded in Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10. We read it earlier, I'm going to read it in a minute, but just so we can get into their skin for a second. The the crowd, they knew this prophecy, like some of you know, 
that the Kings just made the playoffs for the first time in 16 years. A 16-year drought has been burned into your head. And you've been wondering and hoping and waiting, when's it going to end? When's it going to end? I can't imagine being a Kings fan and having to deal with that. But when's it going to end? That's why I'm a Bucks fan, but I digress. The 16-year drought is one of those things you couldn't forget if you tried to forget it. Well, the Messianic prophecies had that kind of effect on the Jewish people. They learned them when they were little, and they never forgot them. So this one in Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10, is in the hearts and in the heads of thousands of people in the crowd shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And here's the prophecy. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your King comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt. The foal of a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. So the Jewish people believed that when their Messiah would finally come, he would enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey. This would be a sign that he's the one. So Jesus has arrived at the northeastern edge of the city of Jerusalem. His followers put their coats on the back of a donkey, a kind of makeshift saddle, and they hoist him up onto it. And Jesus knows exactly what is happening here. And so do they. The fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah 9. As he rides down the Mount of Olives toward Jerusalem, the crowd praises God. They set their coats on the ground and palm branches on the ground. This is red carpet treatment for century style. Other gospel accounts say that people had palm branches that they waved as he rode by, palms being a sign of a king's victory and of the peace he brings. You see all this symbolism colliding here in this entrance into Jerusalem. Luke says the disciples began to joyfully praise God for all the miracles they had seen Jesus perform. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. He comes as a representative of God to show us God's power, the amazing things he can do, and to show us God's way, the humble way he does it. The crowd got the power part, but not so much the way part. This is Jesus' shining moment. For centuries and centuries and centuries, the Jewish people have been waiting for the Messiah to come, and now here he is. But there's no royal robe. There's no sparkling crown. There's no marching band. There's no armed entourage. He's riding a donkey, not a big war horse. He's surrounded by ordinary people, not important dignitaries. He's the anti-king king. So Jesus enters the city the exact same way he entered the world 30 years ago, with startling and head-turning humility. The whole of his life, from the moment it began, was a contradiction to the arrogance and egotism of those who are powerful or who have power. And the twist here is purposeful. Jesus is the powerful king who comes in the name of the Lord, but Jesus is humble. See, power is a dangerous thing in unformed hands. One way the wrongs of the human soul and of the world are revealed is through the various ways power is mishandled. And we see this happen all the time in our broken world. The misuse of power by political leaders. 
business leaders, church leaders, bosses, the misuse of power by men toward women, by adults toward children, the strong misusing their power to take advantage of the vulnerable. Where there is a physical or positional power differential, how this differential is handled says everything about the character of those who have the power. Well, the one we claim to worship has unmatched power to heal, to reconcile, to walk on water, to raise the dead, to make a lot of food out of a little food, but his great power was matched by his great humility. His humility is what drew him to care for those who lived on the edges with their backs against the wall. His humility is why he stopped to interact with the blind and the poor and the sick and the hurting. He was powerful so he could help them, but he was humble so he could see them. Humility is an endangered quality in our world, especially in those who lead or in those who in some way or another succeed. But humility is Christ-like. And I have said this several times from here, but I want to say it again. I continue to feel the need for various reasons. I don't even know all the reasons. That we as a church need to continue to cultivate a passion for humility, and that we as a church need to continue to pray diligently for humility in ourselves and for humility in the soul of our congregation. So another aspect of this seesaw effect we see in King Jesus is that he is satisfying, but he's also disappointing. I'm sure you've had this experience where someone enthusiastically pitches a restaurant and insists you have to go there and try their chicken cacciatore or whatever it might be. So you go and you order it and you take a few bites and it satisfies your hunger. But overall, it was kind of, eh, not sure it was worth it. I mean, it was fine, but disappointing compared to what you were expecting and compared to what it had been billed to be. Well, throughout Israel's history, they looked forward to the day when God's Messiah would come. I don't know if we can actually feel the longing they had and still have to have the Messiah come. They prayed for the day. They longed for the day. They suffered through their nation's many years of suffering, clinging to this idea that one day Messiah would come. But their idea of a king, their idea of a Messiah, was often bound up in their current struggle. A king who would fix this might be a simple way to put it. Fix the Egyptians, fix the Babylonians, fix the Persians. And in the present context, a Messiah who would fix the Romans and lead the Israelites to freedom. And we obviously know from the story, as it unfolds throughout the week, that the very ones shouting, blessed is the king, didn't understand what kind of king he was. They wanted a king who would defeat Rome in battle, but Jesus had a bigger enemy on his radar. So Jesus was not the kind of king they wanted or expected. Jesus was disappointing. I imagine more than a few of us can relate to this. Jesus was not the kind of king they wanted or expected, and in some ways, Jesus was disappointing. He didn't align with their idea of a king. Or in some cases, he was disrupting their lucrative system and messing with their business way too much. In any case, he wasn't what they wanted. So they rejected him. And this gets to the heart of the matter regardless of what century we live in. 
He isn't what I wanted, therefore I don't want him. He doesn't meet my expectations, therefore I'm not interested. He satisfies in some ways, but in other ways, eh. He disappoints, so thanks, but no thanks. I mentioned spending time with a one and three-year-old the other night, running away from these heffalumps and woozles that were loose in the house that we were in. And it all began with me saying this, Hey, Alexa, play the song Heffalumps and Woozles. And Alexa did what I told her to do. And as the song played, we ran around the house. And when the song ended, I said, Hey, Alexa, play the Heffalumps and Woozles song. And off we'd go again. You know, hey, Alexa, are two powerful words in our cultural liturgy. And hey, Siri, are two more. We say the words, and Alexa and Siri are immediately at our service to answer some silly question, to play a song, to give us the forecast, to tell us the score of the game, to provide directions to the nearest gas station. A little sidebar. It is really hard to practice a sermon out loud with, hey, Alexa, and hey, Siri. (laughs) I don't understand that. I must have had this happen 10 times. Kind of triggers various devices in one's presence. But think about this. Hey, Alexa, and hey, Siri, shape us into on-demand consumers where we get accustomed to getting what we want right when we want it. It's this other cultural force that orients around the satisfaction of me and my desires and my wants. I'm not trying to downplay it because I absolutely love it. But something happens when we train ourselves to be about ourselves. And the question just to grapple with is, how does God fit into this system? See, the real Jesus doesn't fit very well in a hey, Alexa world. Hey, Jesus, do this. Hey, Jesus, fix that. Satisfying as he is in some ways, Jesus also disappoints. I'm not saying that he shouldn't. I'm saying that he does. The Pharisees were disappointed because he was overturning their system and disrupting their power. The crowds were disappointed because Jesus didn't lead an insurrection and kick out the Romans. The Romans were disappointed because he was creating a stir. And we are disappointed because things happen in our lives that we wish didn't happen. And things happen in the world that we wish didn't happen. I don't know about you, but this shooting this past week that happens in our world hey jesus stop that from happening ever again jesus is a disappointing king he just is because he does not exist for us it's not hey alexa hey siri hey jesus he does not exist to fulfill all of our desires or play the songs we want when we want them he doesn't immediately fix us Or fix the world. He doesn't completely eradicate evil. And stop every crazed person. Who has evil plans. He disappoints then. Because his ways. Are not our ways. We have a big. Don't let them do it button. And we'd be pushing it all day long. Don't let them do it. We have a big. Don't let it happen button. And we'd be pushing it all day long. 
Don't let that happen. Well, Jesus has decided this isn't the best way to run a universe filled with flawed, free, and broken people. And so we have to decide, not once, but many times, we have to decide if we believe that Jesus sees the whole panoramic view and we only see a sliver of it. So he maybe knows how to run it and how to do it in ways we can't even comprehend. In other words, we have to decide if he knows what he's doing or if we know better. Lastly, in terms of the seesaw effect on Palm Sunday, we find Jesus the King tough but compassionate. I love it in our scripture reading when the disciples go get the donkey for Jesus and the owners protest, as you would expect, uh, why are you taking our colt? And per Jesus, the disciples reply, the Lord needs it. You got a problem with that? They don't say the problem with that, but it's that feel of, you going to mess with us? Kind of a thing. The crowds are shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. These religious leaders don't like these words being ascribed to Jesus. So they say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus replies, if they keep quiet, these rocks are going to cry out. Just this bold, in-your-face comeback. When he gets to the temple courts, the last little section I read in the passage, he sees that the temple courts have become a flea market. And so we're told he goes in and he drives out those who were selling in this flea market. He's cleaning house because they've turned God's house of prayer into a den of robbers. So this tough side of Jesus, if we can call it that, doesn't play around. But any image of Jesus as some biker dude who doesn't play games is just terrifically flawed. He's not just tough. He's not tough in the way that we think of tough even, but he's not just tough. As he descends the Mount of Olives and approaches the city of Jerusalem, verse 41 says that when he saw the city, he wept over it. It's one of my favorite little insights into who Jesus was in the entire New Testament. When he saw the city, he wept over it. You have a picture in your head. You have room in your head for a God who grieves over the waywardness of the very people he created. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Think of the way in which Christian people often turn toward the culture and what's happening in the culture and are filled with this kind of venomous, thought-to-be-righteous rage over what is going on in the culture. I just don't see that in the person of Jesus. He looks out over this entire city. He knows what's going to happen. He knows what they are going to do. And this tender-hearted Jesus cries over the trajectory of these people. The compassion of Jesus. He rejects those who reject him. I mean, he he weeps for those who reject him. He weeps for those who who reject his goodness and his peace. He weeps for those who want nothing to do with him. I find that hard to wrap my head around. Jesus knows that the cheers are soon going to stop. He knows that he's going to soon be rejected and put to death. He knows he's going to suffer. And the tough Jesus does not skip around this. The tough Jesus speaks really hard truth about the consequences of rejecting him. 
He tells the crowd, judgment is going to come, and it's going to come to the city. In a few years, the Romans will bring the full weight of their military might, and they will destroy Jerusalem, and they will destroy the temple, and there will be bloodshed beyond what you can imagine. And this all happened in 70 AD, about 37 years after the story we've been reading. But Jesus grieves all this. He doesn't celebrate it. His people are missing out, so he weeps. He wants to give them unparalleled goodness, and they don't want it. So he cries. He doesn't scream. And it seems to me, as people of faith, we have much to learn from a grieving God, a compassionate God who desires his best for his people and grieves when people turn away and reject him. So today is a day to celebrate. Because though King Jesus is not exactly what we may want, he's actually better because he's exactly what we need. Today is a day to celebrate because through Jesus, God is working out his plan for this world. And Palm Sunday marked the very beginning of a crucial turning point in his plan. Today is a day to celebrate because... From God's perspective, the sun is beginning to shine. Light is breaking through the darkness. Good is starting to overcome evil. Hope is beginning to rise. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the story of our Savior. For his courage. For his resolve. His willingness to ride this final path, endure such horrific treatment, and go through it all that he might liberate us from something far more powerful than Romans. And we're thankful that we have this account in your scripture to teach us, to instill in us the fact that you are a different kind of king. May we come to know you as we are and let go of what we wish you were. May we learn to trust you, even those aspects of you we don't understand or wish were different. And continue to grow us as people who humbly follow you as you humbly lead. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.